Welcome back to the Washed Up Journalists podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by Legacy Preservation. Since 2006, Legacy Preservation has helped families, businesses, and institutions capture their history in book form. Legacy Preservation. We write history. Yours. My guest today is Dr. Eileen Wirth, Professor Emeritus of Journalism at Creighton University. After working on her student newspaper in college, Worth began her reporting career at the Omaha World Herald in the late 1960s, covering the church beat. In little time, she began to enterprise, coming up with her own assignments and impressing editors with her writing ability, one story at a time. Later, she transitioned to academia, where she could impact future journalists in a classroom setting. Worth is the author of numerous books, including From Society Page to the Front Page, about the struggles of pioneering women in journalism, and a forthcoming book about the influential women who helped build the city of Omaha. Here's my interview with Eileen Worth. Let's get started. Okay. How did you first get interested as a as a young woman in journalism in the in the first place to begin with? My dad ordered me to. I wanted to be a history major at the University of Nebraska, but my dad informed me that girls who majored in history ended up in the typing pool. This was 1965. And my older sister was a home ec journalism major, so my parents knew about journalism. And my dad was a farmer, and he always had pretty advanced ideas. He knew I wanted a career. He knew I liked to write, and that was probably my talent. And he just bluntly informed me that if I became a history major, that I would end up typing. And so he ordered me to take a journalism class. So, of course, I obeyed. And then I fell madly in love with it. And my sophomore year at UNL, I ended up being hired by the student paper. And after that, I was sold. I absolutely loved everything about it. Were your parents um, readers or news people? I mean, did they read the paper themselves? Oh, my parents were both omnivorous readers. They read two papers a day, the local paper and the Omaha World Herald. We tripped over books and magazines. My mom had a college degree. My dad did not. But my dad would have read the label on a ketchup bottle if there were nothing else to read. So you started on the student newspaper at the University of Nebraska. What sort of stories did you cover for the the student paper? Well, I... Helped with working on what passed for the city desk, and I did, you know, just odd bits. Nobody, I mean, I didn't have a beat. I did some feature stories, and and basically, I was kind of a an assistant to the news editor, and did you know this and that, and filled in when something needed to be done. But mostly what I loved was the atmosphere of our newsroom and the relationships and the fun and being part of the action. And suddenly you went from being 
a non-entity on a large campus to feeling like you had this group of the world's most amazing friends, many of whom I'm still friends with. Yeah, those ties, those newsroom ties tend to last. You have oh, a, sh a shared history. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you have so much in common. All of a sudden, for the first time in my life, it was an asset to be, social asset to be a smart girl. Growing up in a small town, going to a very small high school, it wasn't. And all of a sudden, I was surrounded by people who were very, very bright and who wanted nothing to do with you if you weren't. And for the first time in my life, I fit. I was with people who were simultaneously very bright and very funny. So at this moment where you fell in love with, with news as a, as a collegian, was it right away, okay, this is what, what I'm going to do for a career? Or did you still think, well, this is good for these four years, but I'm ultimately going to do something else as a career after college? Oh, no, I was going to do it as a career. I loved the courses. Um, no, I was sold on it. This was my future. So was your first job with a paper after college with the Omaha World Herald, or was there an intermediary step along the way? Yeah, there was. Actually, when I was in college, I had a PR internship with the Ag College. My older sister got it for me. And so I actually had a taste of PR in college. And then I worked for a summer and a spring at the Lincoln Evening Journal as a copy editor. And then um, I had been a journalism poli-sci double major. So back when, this is before the women's movement, women in college journalism were just beginning to be aware of discrimination against women in journalism, especially as to the kind of jobs they would hire you for. And I absolutely could not see myself writing weddings and engagements. And I don't know who it was suggested that since I had a poli-sci double major, I should get a master's in poli-sci. And this was by now, it's the very, very, very political late 1960s. And if I wanted a job in news news, getting a master's in poli-sci would pay off. So I got an assistantship in the poli-sci department at the University of Minnesota and spent a year up there and discovered that that was mainly aimed at turning out PhDs in poli-sci. And it was very clear to me early on that I wanted to be a journalist, not a political science professor. Although, ironically, if it had not been for that year, I wouldn't have been able to get the PhD in poli-sci that allowed me to get the PhD Creighton required. Another interesting factoid, since a lot of my life has revolved around trying to open doors for women, is that the year I was admitted to the University of Minnesota, which was 1968, was the first year that they had not automatically docked women's applications for being women. If I had been one year older, my career would have unfolded very differently than it did. That is interesting. And, uh, so from Minnesota then back to Nebraska and to the World Herald? Right. I decided then I had a serious boyfriend. He had been, he was 
had gone to India in the Peace Corps. It was Vietnam era. That was his way out of the draft. And I didn't know whether we were going to get together or not, but I decided that I wanted to go back into journalism. The sensible thing to do would be to go home where I had friends at the University in Lincoln, family in Nebraska City, and spend a couple of years starting my career, and then who knows what. But um, I applied, to show you how different the job market was, and particularly for women, I applied at three newspapers and had three offers. Wow. That is different. <laughs> yeah, it's very different. Well, at the time, the newspaper there, I mean, again, this is pre, I mean, TV even wasn't anything like what it is now in terms, people got their news from the paper, right? In, around Not exactly. By the late 60s, they were, TV had become the pretty much the dominant media. Okay. I, I mean, but the papers were still very, very strong. Um, but the big thing was in that tiny span of years men were getting drafted so suddenly women were in demand it was kind of it wasn't anything like world war ii but women who were in no danger of getting drafted definitely had doors open that had not been open two years before the world herald interestingly enough had refused to hire women from city for city news from the end of World War II until, I believe, 1967, when my good friend Mary McGrath transitioned from women's news to city news. They just had a policy against it. So day one at the Omaha World Herald, you come in the front door. What did they have you do on day one? What was your first assignment? Do you oh, recall? Um, this was interesting. Okay, they hired me for city news. And... I remember after I had accepted the job offer, I looked down the newsroom, which was about a block long, and I looked and I see these rows and rows of desks, and all of them have guys wearing ties and mostly wearing white short sleeve shirts because it was summertime, early or late spring. And all of a sudden, I'm looking and I'm going, where are the women? And I got this almost like gut punch going, oh my gosh, what am I getting into? And then I see Mary McGrath. She was the only woman that you could see in the newsroom. And it was a little intimidating. But unlike, usually at the newspaper, they started most guys for at least a month or so on general assignment. I probably hadn't been there two weeks before they assigned me to the church beat. And at the time, that was fine. But after I'd been there a while, and I started noticing that there was this disparity between what was going on with my male colleagues and myself. Um, now, actually, I was quite fine with the fact that they did not assign me to the police beat, which was the standard starting beat for men. Because when I did start covering police on weekends, I absolutely hated every single minute of it. And the church beat had always been kind of a sort of a an under under 
utilized underappreciated beat because it was basically whatever you could come up with about churches. You had a weekly church page that was necessitated because they had a lot of church ads. They needed to have some copy on it. But within that, I discovered I had a broad range of ability to enterprise. And in retrospect, it was a tremendous way to get to know the city because one way you get to know a great diversity of people who do other things, their business, their ethnicity, etc., is their involvement in their houses of worship. So I meet major business leaders because they were involved in XYZ congregation. It was the late 60s, which was a time of tremendous social involvement and stirring activity, especially in the African-American church community. A lot of the mainline churches, uh, like the Methodists, for example, were heavily, heavily into social action and economic empowerment. So there was a tremendous amount. The Catholics were going through the uh, aftermath of Vatican II. And since the bosses, frankly, didn't much care about the church beat, I had a lot of freedom to enterprise. If it had been a beat they cared more about, I probably would have had less freedom. So was Mary McGrath, one of the questions I had down was who were some of your early mentors? Was Mary McGrath, is it fair to call her Mary a mentor? Uh, more than a mentor. Mary was a mentor, a role model, she became a very close friend. Um, we, we rode to and from work together almost every day because she lived in my neighborhood. Uh, Mary was the groundbreaker for every woman in Omaha in journalism, including the TV women. She covered the medical beat. She was an extraordinary reporter. We all admired her tremendously. And Mary would give advice if it was sought but you could talk I would going to and from work since I usually drove her to and from work she didn't particularly care to drive and I lived in the neighborhood so I'd pick her up and those conversations on the way in the World Herald was not an easy place to work and uh, she was a shoulder to cry on I'm not sure I would have made it through the first year if it hadn't been for Mary and later, Mary helped organize. Mary had spent 12 or 13 years in women's news, covering club news. And Mary was still really good friends with the women in the women's news department. And, you know, us young Turks, the handful of us, the two or three of us, we you know, made it on city news. We thought we were superior. Well, Mary organized these potlucks involving the handful of women on city news and the women in the women's news department. The guys dismissed them as kind of tea parties for the ladies, ha, ha, ha. What they turned out to be was consciousness-raising sessions in which the women formed alliances. We discovered, we city news types discovered that there were some brilliant, very talented women in women's news. And they really wanted to change the, uh, the, the section from this very traditional food and fashion and clubs and who was 
coming, who, who was having guests from New York session, to a very relevant consumer section. Uh, food, of course, they were going to cover, but they wanted to have nutrition. All kinds of really interesting things, features, and, um, you know, you quickly learned that Pat Wolf was one of the best journalists. She was the women's editor, and she was one of the best journalists, period, on the paper. Or you had delightful, brilliantly talented older women who were just marvelous writers like Elizabeth Flynn. And then the younger women became my good friends. So how did you progress over time from that that church beat up? I mean, you, you eventually you talked about getting on the police beat, but what were some of the, the steps along the way um, as you kind of worked your way up the ladder? And, and, and of those steps, what stands out as really formative in terms of your development as a writer? Okay, I quickly discovered that the city editor had 50 people, reporters maybe. I don't know how many I... 35, 50, something like that. And I rather quickly discovered that the city editor really had more to do than to decide how I was going to be employed during the day. And so I have always had an endless ability to think of ideas. And so I decided I was going to do most, I was going to come up with most of my own assignments because I definitely preferred what I would assign myself to what they would assign me. I frequently worked on the, what they called the rewrite desk in the mornings where we were putting out the evening paper and you took dictation uh, from reporters on the beats at the courthouse and city hall and the police station. And you, you know, they'd call in their stories and you would do the, odds and ends that were needed to be done. This was great training. Um, But when it came to features and news and stuff, I just started coming up with my own assignments. And since I was obviously very interested in the social action portion of the church beat, I started doing that. And there was kind of a void when it came to covering a lot of the social service stuff. And after I'd been there eh, a year or so, the women's movement started, and nobody else had the slightest interest in covering it. So I started proposing lots of stories about discrimination against women, efforts to fight them. What I found was there was no pushback. If I could come, I didn't start out and tell the city editors, I am going to cover the women's liberation movement, and by the way, that is going to change the way you treat women. No, I came up with it. I was smart enough to know you came up with it one story at a time because on any given day, a harassed city editor was just happy to have a reporter who could come up with plausible assignments that got pretty good reaction from readers. And, oh, well, if some of them involved changes in the way women were living. And and I also decided it was my job to rid the paper of making fun of women's efforts to combat discrimination. Because at first, they were treated as a joke. And there was a lot of cutesy put-down language, and I started speaking out about that. My male colleagues, by the way, became dear friends, and they didn't always appreciate me. 
or my efforts. But that was okay, you know. The this bit about coming up with your own stories did um, I, that just intrigues me. Did um, do you think by virtue of being a woman, or or maybe by virtue of kind of tethering yourself to this up and coming movement? Did that allow you a little more free reign or rope than, say, a perhaps a young male in your position would have gotten if, if, if he had decided to come up with a bunch of stories about something that wasn't as influential in terms of uh, society and culture? I mean, I'm just to me, that seems interesting that a young reporter was given free reign to just kind of set her own agenda. Well, I could set my own agenda one story at a time. I could come in on Tuesday morning and say, there is this interesting interview that I am going to do with someone who is starting a daycare center uh, for people in public housing. As long as I, it, the trick to it, first of all, I don't know that being a woman had as much to do with it as figuring out that as a young reporter, you got the dregs. And particularly, if you were on a hard news beat, the city hall or the police or something, you covered what was going on. You covered a lot of spot news. There was less spot news on my assigned beat. And unless I wanted to do stuff that was hopelessly boring or take whatever they had left over after the more experienced reporters or the people on beats, then they would have a stack of stuff, and a lot of it was not stuff I... So I just quickly figured out, okay, I will make up most of my own assignments. And I think a young man could have done it just as well as I did. A lot of it was simply in figuring out that the city editor was overwhelmed with running a newsroom of a great many people. And as long as what you were doing seemed newsworthy and you produced, I mean, I could see a guy doing exactly what I did, maybe not the exact stories I picked out, but the approach would have worked for anybody. Well, that makes sense. I, I see where you're coming from. I mean, from. like the late, wonderful Fred Thomas invented the environment beat in much that fashion. Certainly, the high muckety mucks at the paper had no particular interest in the environment. Fred was passionate about it, and so he just kept producing story after story after story on the environment. And next thing you know, he was the environmental reporter. Made himself indispensable, right? Well, I'm not sure it was indispensable, but it was like, oh, yeah, we got a story dealing with the environment, because the environmental movement was starting about then, too. And keep Omaha beautiful in the parks and anything dealing with nature. That was Fred's. How long um, along this path you're on, how long was it before you felt like you had earned the respect of um, other men in the newsroom? And then um, how long before you, say, caught the attention of your, your bosses that really appreciated the job you were doing? Okay, I think I had the respect of many of the men, certainly not all, but many of them pretty much from the get-go. There were some great people, and the Fred Thomases, the Dave Thompsons, even the Jim Fogartys, but a lot of them, 
more good people. And if a woman could come in and show she could do the job, she had their respect. They all respected Mary. So there was a presumption that if you were serious about what you were doing and you were productive, there were other people who, there were a few, I'm not going to name names, that would just assume we had not invaded the newsroom. But there were enough of them. Now, when it came to the bosses, and you have to have worked at the World Herald, I don't think the bosses ever respected most of us or made us feel valuable. I, I mean, for the whole 11 years I worked there with a couple of exceptions, certainly on the city desk, the, the late incredible Bud Pagel, who was never above assistant city editor, was an exception to that. I formed a very close tie with Jim Clemen, who was the editor of the editorial page. Um, he had me come back when they had uh, people who would be on vacation in what we called Skid Row. He would have me come back and spend a week or two writing editorials, and I did that pretty regularly. Um, I wrote volunteer stuff for the magazine of the Midlands and formed a close tie with Hollis Limprecht, who was fabulous. A lot of it was enterprise. A lot of it was me saying, here's something I'm interested in, and going to people and saying, hey, if I did such and such. One of my mentors whom I adored was Don Piper, who ran the Lincoln Bureau, and they sent me and most other young reporters down to Lincoln after I'd been there several years, down to Lincoln during the session for a couple of weeks of what amounted to intensive postgraduate journalism training. And I loved it. Um, given my political science background, um, I learned more about state government in two stints of a couple of weeks each helping cover the legislature than I did in my entire political science graduate work, which eventually included a PhD in poli-sci. That's telling right there. In terms of on-the-fly, real-world experience, you picked it up by well, doing it. Well, and also, too, there were a number of veteran statehouse reporters. Um, and sitting at lunch with these guys was better than a graduate seminar. So let's talk about this police beat that you hated so much beyond, yes. beyond the obvious where you're dealing with reporting on let's just, well, crime, right? Right. W what about it was um, so miserable? <laughs> First of all, I wasn't good at it. Um, police beat is not what most people think, at least especially if you only do it once a week under duress. I used to go to bed on Friday night saying, please, God, don't let there be any crime on tonight. Because a lot of what you do on police beat, if you are inept, if you're on a beat, you would develop sources and you would come up with it. But when you're one day a week, maybe, doing it, you, I was just praying that I did not make some disastrous career-ending mistake, which was really easy to do. One of the women we worked with did make such a mistake, and it literally ended her career. So your potential for a disastrous error was huge. It's more volatile, right? Oh, my gosh. 
So, and then you had to go through a lot of it if you were just trying to get through the day without doing anything disastrous, which was my level of incompetence, was you had to go through the police reports, try to figure them out, try to read police handwriting. A lot of these police reports were poorly written, both in terms of the handwriting, name spellings, places, and of course they weren't there. The cops at that period were not wildly enthusiastic over the idea that a short blonde who looked 18 had been sent into their lair. And so there was a certain amount of, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair to call it harassment, but they, they, they made it uncomfortable. For they you. made it uncomfortable. And they did, they also made it uncomfortable for young men. There were young men who hated the police beat as much as I did. Sure. Um, but it was not my milieu. And I didn't find anything intellectually stimulating in writing down a list of injured in traffic, being terrified that I couldn't see if somebody named Nielsen, if that was an O or an E, and if that was a 4 or a 7, knowing that all hell would break loose if I made a mistake. I'm not the best on details anyway, and police beat was nothing but unremitting detail. Right, right. So 11 years at the Omaha World Herald, um, in that time, what would you say are you most proud of in, in terms of a story that you covered or a series of stories? What are you most proud of over that decade plus? You know, there were individual stories, but overall, if you were going to ask me, I was probably most proud of helping open doors to women and to making coverage of substantive news about women a major part, not because they were doing women a favor, but because stuff was newsworthy. Changing the definition. I'll give you two stories as an example. Um, one of my news sources from the Mayor's Commission on the Status of Women called me to, her daughter was a student athlete at UNO, and she called me to let me know that Connie Clausen, who was the women's coach of everything and taught phys ed, was only going to teach her classes and was no longer going to teach, or no longer going to coach for free. I offered the story to the sports department. They laughed at it. I said, they said, that's not newsworthy. Nobody cares about women's sports, and nobody cares. Well, the UNO sports reporter, who, by the way, was not Bob Williams, if you're listening, Bob Williams. Um, but the UNO sports reporter just laughed at it and said, women's sports are a joke. So I said, okay, fine, I'll do it. They played at page one on the Sunday paper. And they followed that up with a couple of days of coverage showing the Quonset hut where, with no showers where the women's athletes had to practice. And eventually, UNO was embarrassed enough that Connie started being paid to coach, and it planted the seeds of UNO's wonderful hypercenter. And so I think that had real impact. Okay, another one which had national impact, a, a farm woman in Springfield named Doris Royal calls one Saturday, and she says, 
you interested in stories about women? And I said, yeah. And then she told me that a lot of farm women were being forced off their farms when their husbands died because the IRS considered uh, farm earnings to belong to the husband. And even if a woman had worked side by side on the tractor, milking cows, what have you, and a lot of farm women did, they did not consider that a contribution to the farm. And consequently, women were required to pay inheritance taxes on their family operations unless they could prove that they had worked in town and contributed money or that some of the land was theirs through inheritance from their birth families. And so this woman, this marvelous farm woman, had mounted a petition drive to change that. So I wrote a story about it. My good friend Roseanne Shannon did. And somebody sent it to the Farm Journal, and the Farm Journal took it nationwide. They got over a million signatures. Wow. Doris went back to Congress and testified and took this million signatures. The law got changed. Now, the follow-up to that was when I was at the World Herald, I got a master's in journalism because I thought someday I would want to teach journalism. Whenever I'd get mad at the paper, I would say, I'm going to go be a journalism teacher. So I got a master's in journalism. And when I was doing my master's thesis on farm women and the mass media, I called the Farm Journal to get something and started explaining who I was and where Omaha was. I mean, the Farm Journal would, of course, know where Omaha was. But the, the, I got this person at the Farm Journal. She said, we know who you are. You wrote the stories about Doris Royal. And so they tripped all over themselves helping me. That's great. You had a, your, your reputation had preceded you at that Yeah, point. and I had no idea they would have any clue, but they were great. They gave me some stuff that was extremely helpful to the thesis. So you alluded there to your time as an instructor in the classroom, and that's how you and I first knew each yeah. other as teacher and student. What parts of your experience working as a reporter were, were most handy in the classroom instructing college students? Here's how you go about um, earning your way, earning a career in this business. What did you felt? What did you feel like you took with you into the classroom? Because I can, I can attest firsthand you were a very in, effective instructor. So what parts of that experience did you take with you? And I know you also had years in corporate communications and public relations um, that, that also, I'm sure, impacted what you brought into the classroom. Okay. There were the single most important impact on my teaching style was I tried to work with students as a good editor works with a reporter, which is to say one-on-one. I quickly learned that if you were teaching a writing class, that you didn't just get up, lecture, and assume that kids would figure it out. So I imitated the editors who would go around and look at what you were doing as you were doing it. And I would talk to the students, as you remember. I would talk to them one-on-one and say, you know, John, this looks pretty good, but your lead is probably down here. Why don't you try rewriting that lead? Or if somebody was doing something, I would share what they were doing, especially positive, uh, with the whole class. 
but I think that style of one-on-one, because no two people, whether they're a student or somebody who's been doing it 40 years, writes the same. And you can only edit stuff one-on-one. And I tried to teach, to treat students as if I were their editor, not just their professor. And eventually you kind of developed a sense of how each student wrote, what their strengths and weaknesses were, and you tried to encourage the strengths and, and do something about the weaknesses. Now, one thing I did, and this was not a result of the newsroom, it was a result of a truly horrible first journalism teacher. Many of us at Lincoln had come from small schools. Mine was one of them. My graduating class had 34 people. We had extraordinary English and no journalism. Well, journalism and five-paragraph English essays are written differently. And some of the students in my class had gone to large Omaha and Lincoln high schools that had strong high school journalism programs. They knew how to write a news story. My first instructor would make fun of us if we publicly, she would publicly humiliate what we had written. And I resolved if I ever taught journalism, I was going to treat all students with respect. And I also discovered, didn't take very long at Creighton to figure out that Creighton students are really grade driven. These are smart kids, but a lot of them came from schools like mine that had not had journalism. So I figured out that they were freaking out if I graded their first efforts down because they hadn't mastered journalism style. That's what I was there to teach them. So for the first half of a semester, when I was teaching the intro classes, I said, I'm going to give you lots of feedback and no grades, which freaked some of them out. I said, after fall break, I will start grading. And I also gave students the opportunity, if they wanted to, to rewrite stories for a higher grade because in the real world, that's something I carried in from the newsroom. In the real world, if you have a story that needs work on, they don't just say, this is bad work. This work needs work. Go fix it. Go fix it. And students didn't have to, but if I gave their... say a B minus and they wanted an A or an A minus they had an opportunity to rewrite it for a higher grade so my real goal was to get them to calm down enough about grades that they were focusing on the work not the grade and to give I reward hard work I'm a farm girl if a person was willing to work hard they would get rewarded for it, just like in the real world. It also taught them to take criticism because they knew that the criticism was the path to a higher grade. Yeah, you know, as someone who sat in the room and and got critiqued, two things jump out as as, uh, successful about that methodology. One, 
it prepared you for getting edited in a newsroom because there's there's an element like the first time you get edited by somebody who knows what they're doing it's kind of scary because all of a sudden you have your confidence is high and then somebody just tears apart what you've written and all of a sudden your confidence is pretty bad pretty low yeah and so it kind of hardens you a little bit to be edited by a good editor which i think is important um and then and then um it, it gets you i guess accustomed to that newsroom atmosphere where um, it's about, okay, you, you wrote something, it's got some errors, let's fix it and make it better so it's ready for publication. Right, right. And I tried to do it in a way that was positive and constructive and did not leave the students feeling shredded because, unfortunately, in the World Herald, too often, even though, even when you'd gotten pretty good, they would shred you. And they would make you angry. And I talked about Bud Pagel, who just died. Pagel, I'll, I'll never forget a couple of days, and these became woven into my teaching style. And Bud, of course, became a teacher at UNL's journalism. But he came over one day, and he was sort of shaking his head. He looked like a leprechaun. He was sort of shaking his head, and he said, and this is before me too, so he would say, he'd said, hey, my lovely, which was not sexist, I must add. It was affectionate and fun. He said, hey, my lovely, this is not up to your usual standard. Let's do it this way. Now, the typical approach too often in that era on the city desk is, this is terrible. How could you make such a stupid or this is awful? And then they would almost insult you. Bud came over and said, let's do it this way. And suddenly, instead of being angry and tense and feeling like you don't have a brain or any talent, I'm suddenly asking, why didn't I think of that? Yeah. You, you tried to, I tried to make students realize that they, all they had to do was open themselves. And instead of me saying, do this, it would be, how do you think we should fix this? Well, I'll, again, another anecdotally, when I remember, I carry, to this day, I carry this with me, um, I forget what I had written, but you gave me some feedback on something. And we kind of went line by line through whatever I had written. And then you kind of said, big picture, John, you need to take more chances in your writing. Because I think I had fallen into a trap of trying to be really solid and just the facts, ma'am. And what I was missing was a little creativity in my writing. So to this day, when I've written a draft of something, I'll step back and say, okay, how could I do this differently and take more risks? And ultimately, that's kind of my default is to be a little too conservative in my writing. And so by forcing yourself to kind of break out of your own skin and, in, in my case, take some risks, I think it has the potential to improve my writing. I'm sure there were some students who took too many risks and you had to rein them in a little bit, right? Oh, absolutely. But with some students, okay, you started out with the enormous benefit of having good grammar. With some students who were not blessed with good grammar, and I'm not saying whether people, some students could diagram a sentence. Others simply had good grammar because they had had a good high school education and their family spoke good English. Some students, my goal was to get them to write a simple, clear, declarative English language sentence with no grammatical errors. Now, I would tell a handful of students, and there probably are 10 over the many years I taught, I would tell a handful of them, I'm going to be really tough on you because you're starting out either because they'd had a great, mostly because they'd had a great high school background. 
If they started out where most people ended up because they had a really good high school journalism teacher, well, that wasn't going to challenge them. And so I, I, I would tell them ahead. I said, now, look, you're going to think I'm being tough on you. But you're starting out at a place where many students are going to finish up. So I'm going to be harder on you so that you will get something out of this. And so you will grow. And once you did that, they took it as a compliment. So let's transition a little bit to your book writing. Yeah. Um, You've written extensively about women in journalism. In fact, one of your books is even titled uh, From the Society Page to the Front Page. Um, explain the dynamic of how, how women um, who were once, I'd call it, relegated to the society pages, how has that changed over the years, in your opinion? And, um, and beside just the big picture of the women's movement, what's contributed to that? Okay. I ended up writing that book because I had a sabbatical from Creighton. Every however many years, it was a lot of years, I think it's every 12 years or something at that time you were entitled to apply for a sabbatical. And I wanted to do something on us baby boom women who had opened the doors for women in journalism. And I discovered whenever you get a good idea, usually somebody else has had it first. So the national scene was already done. So my older sister, I think it was, suggested that I do something on women in baby boom women in Nebraska. Well, heck, I knew that better. And so I thought that sounds good. And so I went down to University of Nebraska Press and they said, well, we're willing to do this if you will go back to pioneer days and write the history of women from pioneer days. And I I said, sure. And then halfway back to Omaha, I said, oh my God, what if there weren't any? So I had a book about famous Nebraska women done for the National Bicentennial, and that had about eight women journalists. And I thought, okay, there were some. But that launched me on this fascinating effort to find them in various eras. Oh, and also, as a student at Lincoln, I had to do an assignment that involved, and it was easier to do historical assignments at the Historical Society than it was at the library. They were nicer to you. And they told me then about that Nebraska at one time had had a suffrage newspaper, and it was at Beatrice. And I thought, boy, that's weird. So the book gave me an opportunity to follow up on that. And one thing led to another. And basically, I ended up doing this tremendously, to me, interesting research and writing project about the women of Nebraska journalists from pioneer days up until about the beginning of the women's movement, both nationally and locally. And I discovered we had some really incredible women, and nobody had written this. And the University of Nebraska Press has, or part of their mission is to publish stuff about Nebraska. And just some of the people and some if if you if, it was basically a giant reporting project how did your um newspaper background influence your work as an author of books I, I mean i'm assuming because you were on newspaper deadlines you're a pretty fast writer but what else did you take away from daily journalism that you can apply to book writing oh everything <clears throat> 
The most important thing is the ability to interview. A lot of the best material, in the Women in Journalism book, I'd say 90% of the best material came from interviews. Uh, and on this book that I am doing, that will come out in May on the history of Omaha women, I think I must have interviewed 50 to 60 people. And a lot of the material, I mean, the skill of interviewing, which I learned on the newspaper, is invaluable. And the writing style. Um, I think University of Nebraska Press and their Bison Books Division, their um, guidelines call for a journalistic writing style. And I thought, I've nailed that one. They, didn't, they want something in that division, which is what you and I both write for, for the general reader. Okay. Another thing that helped enormously was the ability to take criticism. A lot of people who set out to write books are very bright people. They have written it the way they want to write it. And when an, a book editor says, boy, that needs some work. They fold up and crumble. They're not ready they to They fold up that. and crumble, and they probably don't finish it. Yeah. Somebody who has lived on a newspaper for 11 years looks at it and goes, you know, hate to say it, but you're right. I had to do that. I've been doing this now for, what, 50 years? I had to do this on the women, Omaha Women book. The reviewer of it made some pretty pointed and valuable comments. And I looked at that, and I thought, thank you. I actually sent this reviewer and critic a thank you note at the end of it because it improved the book, her criticism, and it wasn't real specific. It wasn't like change this on page 18. It was more of an overall approach to the writing. The critic was absolutely right. I had been struggling with it. My approach did not work half as well as hers. I basically spent two weeks rewriting everything along the line she suggested. And now I'm really proud of what has come out of it. But that wouldn't have happened if... Uh, if you have worked on a paper, you have an ability to work with editors because you know you need their help. Mm -hmm. Painful though it is. Yeah, every writer needs a good editor. Yeah, but amateur writers, that's the difference between amateur writers and professionals. Professionals understand they have to have editors. And one of my friends in the Creighton English Department whose novels get published and reviewed by the New York Times, says he writes, can I use a, a swear word on this? Absolutely. He says he writes shitty first drafts. <laughs> okay? I've always liked that because mm -hmm. I'm telling myself, hey, if even Brent writes shitty first drafts, who am I to? You, you can't get to something good if you don't start out bad. you got to start somewhere. you right? got to start somewhere. Yeah. Let's talk about, so there's a book that's now out that you've written. It's recently published called The History Lover's Guide to Omaha. I have it right here in my hand. I got to say, actually, this this one surprised me. I kind of thought, oh, it's a neat little book if you're an out-of-towner. There's a lot in here about um, just special parts of Omaha that even if you've lived here your whole life, you might not know about or not know everything about. How did that project come about and what was fun about putting it together? Because I believe you told me this was a, a COVID-19 project right. for you. Well, what happened was the National History Press came to me. Um, 
they came to me for my first project for them when I was still at Creighton and was going to retire. And they had stumbled across the fact that the women in journalism book had done reasonably well. So they called me and said, we are looking for, they write, they do local history stuff for every state. Okay, this particular book is part of a, a series that they have on cities nationally. Okay, but anyway, they came to me with something that they said, we want you to do a book on X, well, it was on William Jennings Bryan's journalism career, which you could summarize it in about four paragraphs. And I kept looking and looking and saying, no, there's got to be more there. And I said, finally said, no, there is no more there. And they said, well, we don't think there's a project there. And I'm going, hey, you guys came to me. Big deal. I've got lots to do. So anyway, they said, well, we don't like the idea, but we like you. And they said, if you can come up with an idea, we'll publish the book. So I went to my friend Beth at the Bookworm, and she suggested a book on the Henry Dorley Zoo. Well, they liked that. And, that, and, you, and you did that book. Right? I did that book. Yeah. So then while I was up to my eyeballs in the women's book and just totally engaged with it, they call and they said, hey, we want you to do a history lover's guide to Omaha and explain the story. And I said, I don't have time. I'm up to, the, I'm doing this book. University of Nebraska Press is interested, blah, blah, blah. They said, no, we want you to do it. We really want you to do it. And I said, well, so anyway, bottom line is, when I finished the women's history book, the copy for that, then I said, okay, I had said I would do it, but I told them that I said, okay, but I can't do both at once. So then I did it, and by then we were into pandemic, and I'm working with my dear friend Carol McCabe, who's a photographer and so forth, and Carol was very excited about doing this, but we couldn't go in. The model books we were given mostly were about museums. We couldn't go in anything. So Because of COVID. Because of COVID. Yeah. So I think one of us, maybe it was me, came up with the idea that we should look at, get lists of all of the historic buildings that are online, National Register of Historic Places, Omaha Landmarks, and by then, I'm on the board of History Nebraska, and I knew that our website had every historic marker in the state. So I downloaded all of those for Douglas County. I downloaded the landmarks plans. I downloaded the National Register of Historic Places. All of a sudden, you have something that looks like chapters. So we divided them and said, oh, all of these are in Florence. All of these are in North Omaha. All of these are in South Omaha. So pretty soon we had an outline, and we thought the sensible thing to do, since people couldn't go in any place, they'd be driving, would be to put together driving routes that you could find all these places. Um, and that's what you did, right? You got in the car and you yeah, drove Yeah, we got around. in the car and drove around. And then we researched all of these places that were on these things. Um, we went to Marty Schuchert, the former city planning director who knows more about Omaha than I think anybody. And I've worked with Marty on stuff. And Marty gave us, a, a, a you know, a, a sort of the poor man's guide to how Omaha developed. And then we just did chapters, and we started with the markers, the historic buildings, the cemeteries, drove around, researched the ones, and that's how the book came together. And, of course, you know, um, we had a ball doing that. 
And then the, um, the, the book you're working on now about the women who built Omaha, when is that scheduled to come out? It's supposed to come out in May of 2022. Gotcha. We'll have to keep an and eye And it out seems to be on schedule, so I'm really hoping that that schedule holds up. Awesome. Well, last question, and I'll get you out on this. If you had a message to a, a young um, co- college student in a journalism program somewhere across the country, what would that message be? It's really hard to put this into a couple of sentences. But I think there are a couple of tricks to success in journalism. The first one, sometimes high school kids, when I was at Creighton and was recruiting them, and they'd say, well, what should I take if I want to be a journalism major? I'd say, take English, English, English. Develop very solid writing skills. Even in this day and age of Twitter and social media, Writing skills are absolutely essential, including old-fashioned grammar. Secondly, develop or get a solid arts and sciences background because the thing about journalism that made me love it is with journalism, journalism people ideally are people who have broad interests, These are not people who are going to build their whole life around one year of the French Revolution. These are people who can be interested in anything for eh, a morning, maybe, and who on a dime can be told, I, you have to go interview the Juilliard String Quartet. I'm not a music person. I had an absolutely delightful interview with the Juilliard String Quartet. You are going to do the damnedest assortment of assignments because the nature of journalism is that the world. So I think I would say develop discipline, learn how to accept criticism, be reliable above all else. In this field, it's a word-of-mouth field. And you will get your jobs based on what people say about you. And a high part of that is reliability. But you kind of know if you're going to be a journalist if you have basic English language skills and a mindset. I always knew a kid was going to be a journalism major when they said, I just can't decide what I'm interested in because I am interested in everything. My answer was, welcome to our department. (laughs) That's good. That's good. Well, that's good advice. And this was a really interesting interview that we covered a lot of ground. And I'm so glad you stopped by to do it. It's been long overdue. We've talked about doing it for <laughs> probably at least a year. And so uh, this was a good, we almost went an hour. That was pretty good. So. Okay, John, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. And I hope that um, one thing you, I just want to close with our goal in the 19. 19- 70s, early late 60s, early 70s, for some of us, the pioneers like Roseanne and me, our goal was to open opportunities to women. And now the field, I think, maybe other than at very top management levels, and even then that has changed. I mean, the new managing, the new head editor at the Washington Post is a female. We won. You got it done. Yeah, we did. <laughs> That's pretty cool. All right, thanks so much. Appreciate okay, John, it. thank you.